Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest this week is legendary rock and roll manager and one of the funniest storytellers I know, Doc McGee. Doc's stories could fill multiple books and include some of the most memorable artists and events in rock and roll history. Doc McGee was at the helm of some of the biggest rock bands to emerge from the MTV era, Bon Jovi, Motley Crue, Skid Row, The Scorpions, Night Ranger, Guns N' Roses, Hootie and the Blowfish, and Kiss. He's also managed solo artists like Ted Nugent, Darius Rucker, and Richie Sambora. Rock and roll isn't just a slogan for Doc. He's lived the same lifestyle that his artists did and has taken chances to gain the heights that he's reached. From run-ins with the law to organizing the Moscow Music Peace Festival, the world's first ever Western rock festival in the Soviet Union. His success behind some of the biggest albums of the 80s has certainly earned him a place in the pantheon of rock. But don't just take my word for it. Let's hear those crazy stories from Doc himself. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Very, very happy this week to be hosting an old friend of mine who is one of my favorite people to talk to because he's always got a great story to tell. One of the funniest people I've ever met. Welcome, Doc McGee. Hi, Doc. How are you doing? How's everything there in New York? Everything, you know, here at Atlantic Records Studio and New York City is pretty good. You're in Florida right now, right? That's correct. I'm in Naples, Florida. Continuing my QTR, which is quality time remaining. <laughs> so, Doc, your life, your career, it's all been extremely colorful. So I want to know, like, first off, are you where you thought you'd be? Like, you know, looking, we're recording this in March of 2023. When you look back on your life, is this what you thought it would be or is it completely different? Is probably completely different because, and I don't know about everybody else. I can just tell you about me. I never thought I'd be anywhere. Not that I wouldn't be something, but I wouldn't, I didn't have any aspirations that I was going to do this or do that, or I was going to be at where I'm at today. It's kind of like just every day to me is, is not Groundhog Day, as you know, in this business. So it's ever-changing. It's always evolving into crazy shit. I don't know. You just end up, you turn around, and the next thing you know, you're 47 years in the business. Unbelievable. I mean, for those who don't know Doc's history, as a manager, Doc's most well-known clients are truly the Mount Rushmore of rock music over the past half century, including past and present, Kiss, Motley Crue, Bon Jovi, 
Guns N' Roses for a minute, Skid Row, Scorpions, Hootie, Darius, Ted Nugent, and on and on and on. You know, for one guy to be part of all those careers, what do you think the through line is? I think the through line is pathfinding and getting people to move on in the right direction. And I think that everybody gravitates to that. Listen, in management, you know, there's, you say you're a manager or you're an A&R guy, okay? It shouldn't be that way. It should be you're a general A&R guy or you're a the colonel A&R guy or you're a private A&R guy, okay? They have some sort of level of what you're talking about because there's managers that help artists and there's managers that kill artists, okay? And so for me, I always felt that management you had to change your life for the better it wasn't about taking care of them and getting them to and from shows and shit like that you had to do things that elevated their careers and their lives that's what we did and so by doing that people gravitate to you because you you do stuff like that for all of those artists that i just named um Mm -hmm. many of them stand for decadence or they're kind of synonymous with decadence and an over-the-top sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle. How much of that is flash? How much of that is real? And if it is real, has there ever been a time when it's just been too much even for you? Uh, I think you said it all right there. And see, one thing about you, you've lived it. So you've you started in this movie. So you can ask the right questions and actually almost answer it for me. Listen, you deal with people that are in their late teens or early 20s, most of them less than a high school education. And if they had a high school education, it's just because they gave it to them to get rid of them. Both the artist and myself included are probably out on the spectrum somewhere to a certain extent because we don't focus on the center, okay? We focus way left or right. We fish in deeper waters. So, Whatever it is, if it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll, we do it to the extreme. And I think that that's what, in our business, I don't think you can fake it. I think you have to be it. You as an A&R person, you understand that. It's not so much your taste. Who cares about your taste or my taste? We have to find the public's taste. Right. And the public's taste is really star-driven. Star driven and musically acceptable, palatable and unique in some sense. Okay. But really, it's about finding that person that can deliver that package. Right. And so that sometimes, not sometimes, most of the time requires people who are extroverts that go out there and do their own thing, whether people like it or not. And most of the time, at the beginning, they don't like it. Right, because it's so different, but then they become sought after, and people gravitate to them. It's funny that you say what you just said because I say it all the time that my opinion doesn't matter. The only opinion that matters is the opinion of the audience. Correct. And I've heard you say that the most important thing for any artist's success is the connection. 
the genuine connection that that artist has with their audience because so few artists actually really connect with the audience and vice versa. And unlike some other managers, you're not there to pass judgment on the music that your artists make. You're not a music critic. You're a businessman. You run these artists' careers as their manager like a business. I've also heard you compare picking an artist to work with like onto the racetrack. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I mean, we're you're included in this. We're handicappers. We go to the racetrack every day. And when we go to the racetrack, we look at the horses and we look at who's behind the horses. And we see what stable they come out of. (laughs) You know what I mean? What producers they have, what people that, you know, what kind of connection they have with their public. And then we decide if we want to bet on them. Okay, that's really what it's about. Right. And we both made poor decisions on that front. Everybody does. Yeah, we picked the wrong horse. Sometimes we pick them because we think we, with a little bit of change, right. we can change them and they'll, right. they'll do this. Well, that isn't going to happen. They'll evolve. And if we're doing our job and we, if we empower them to be better at what they do and give them the tools to be better at what they do and they can stand up and do it, then we win. And the ones that can't die. Right. And it's about work ethic. It's about giving the audience. And again, it's about entertaining the audience, connecting with the audience and giving the audience the reason why they're going to spend their time and money committing to this artist. Right. Correct. You know, and you've never shied away from spectacle. One of the things I love about you, Doc, is that you're extremely quotable. And one of your quotes that I've heard you say that I love so much is, if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. You want to talk about that? I think that in our world, is our world is excess. And we have access to excess. What we have to do is we just bring it to the public, which they want access. Okay. So, and we overdo everything because it's a spectacle. You want to make it bigger, better, better. You know, I mean, my piano may be the movie of the year. Okay. As far as the critics are concerned, but the public, they want fucking Maverick or they want uh, my Top Gun or whatever it is. Right. They want something that's exciting. And they want something that means something to them that they know what they're going to get when they come and see it. They don't want shoegazers and people that just sit there. I mean, yes, there's an audience for all kinds of artists. Okay. But for what I do, I like spectacles. And I think that that's what I've always said. If it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. So you have to be bigger, badder, and better than everybody else. If you want people to come. Right. And, and, a lot of times people don't really think about the fact that, you know, the audience wants to live vicariously through these larger-than-life people. You know, I mean, KISS is a great example because KISS has been doing what they do for close to 50 years at this point, and people are still showing up because they are not KISS, but they can go to see KISS You know, they can buy the merchandise. They can do the things. I remember probably a decade ago or thereabouts where you were telling me about this new merch item for Kiss called the Kiss Coffin. And I said to you, 
Doc, you really think people are going to buy Kiss coffins? What are they going to do while they're still alive? And without missing a beat, you said, Pete, they'll use it as a beer cooler. <laughs> they can. They can, they, can put, <laughs> they can put all their Kiss memorabilia inside of it and show it off in their in their van cave. Okay, and then when they die, they get buried in. And for another ten grand, Gene will get buried with them. <laughs> Let's back up to the beginning. You were born in the Chicago area. Your legal birth name was not Duck. You grew up in a working class family. Your dad was a welder. You know, yes. so with that type of start, like who would have predicted that you would be, you know, behind the stage with whether it's Bon Jovi or Kiss or Guns N' Roses or whoever? I think that people don't give enough credit to parents or to your upbringing. But I'm sure my parents never thought that I would, they couldn't imagine me doing what I do. They couldn't before they passed away. But on the other hand, they groom you to be forward thinking, to work harder, you know, that type of mentality. Right. So I went selling cars, I was waiting tables, I was a waiter, I was in the army. I had sold construction equipment. I was trying to just find my way. Figure it out, right. But every time I did those things, not that I'm humble, I'm not that humble, but I was really good at whatever I was doing because I felt that that's what you had to be. If you were better than everybody else, you were the best waiter, you made the most tips. If you're the best salesman, you made the most commissions. Right. If you didn't count on a paycheck, but went after all the money because it was about you, you made a lot of money. Right. And those are all the things that I think were inbred in me growing up. Were your parents supportive of this crazy journey of yours after you got out of the Army? You know, I'm not sure they could even fathom what I was doing. You know, they had six kids and they were trying to get through their, their life with the kids and also supporting mine and helping me get through things. But yeah, they're very supportive because, you know, they like when you're good at what you're doing, regardless, whatever it is, that's all life is about, by the way, is to have the gratification when you go home at night that you did a good job, no matter right. what you did. If you were cleaning cars and you were the best fucking car cleaner, when you go home, you feel good about yourself. Right, it's a great feeling. And that's what I think was instilled in me. And it kept driving me to go do different things and newer and different approaches of things. One thing that I've heard about you from those days, the post-Army, moving to Florida, doing odd jobs days, is that you had an effortless charisma about you and that people who met you liked you and they wanted to spend more time with you. And that's how you got into music. You meet a music manager and you start working with this music manager. And unlike the roster you have now, it wasn't rock music. It was more R&B and jazz in the beginning, right? Correct. Which was more my style. You know, I played guitar in a rock band when I was in high school and stuff. And I liked rock music mostly at that time, but kind of through the army and stuff, through Zeppelin and through different things, I started getting more blues based and stuff. And when I got out, when I started in the music business doing stuff, I enjoyed the average white band and I enjoyed 
you know, Phyllis Hyman and all that kind of stuff. And so I ended up starting to represent those artists, putting together the Brecker brothers and David Sanborn and Lamont Johnson and Henry Stewart and Steve Ferrone and the Average White Band and Sandy Torano and, and Howard Johnson, who was on A&M forever and in a band called Night Flight on Areola. And then signing James Brown, spending time with James and Isaac Hayes. And my first artist with Atlantic Records, I signed to Amit, was Mick DeVille. Right. Which elevated my scope of learning because I got to spend all the time with Amit. Right. A lot of the reason that we're where we are, you know, all of us, is because of the mentors that we've gotten to learn from and the teachers who have taught us, whether it's, you know, Amit and Doug, like you're mentioning, or, you know, the other people that have been in our lives paying it forward for the days that they're no longer here, we can keep it going. All of this was happening, you know, in the late 70s and the early 80s. You mentioned Night Flight and they had a song, you know, that was actually a hit. And so people were like, oh, well, this guy must know what he's doing. Right. And this is all happening out of Florida at the time. Right. Correct. And Florida in the 80s, most people knew Florida in the 80s from the fictionalized version of what they saw on TV with Miami Vice. How much of that was real? Well, in the 70s, it was pretty real. I uh, started in like 75 down here. And so through the 70s and into the early 80s, yeah, then it got to be crazy. Then it was the cocaine cowboys and everything else, and it got to be nuts. And I was kind of, I kept my office down in Coconut Grove with Coral Gables, but really was out of New York. That's where I spent most of my time. And then opened in, after Motley Crue, I signed Motley Crue in 82. I opened an office in L.A., so I started going L.A., New York, not doing Florida. Right. But I kept the office here until 95. So I read that your first rock client after all the jazz and R&B was Pat Travers. Is that right? That's correct. So Pat Travers, for those who don't know, a couple of what we call AOR classics, album-oriented rock classics of the late 70s, Boom Boom, Out Go the Lights, Snorting Whiskey and Drinking Cocaine. How did you find Pat, and how did that change how you looked at the artists you were going to manage? I met Pat in uh, Coconut Grove in the 70s, saw him and really went to the some show at the Snortatorium, we used to call it. And it was a Snortatorium, <laughs> but we used to call it the Snortatorium. And he had a band with Pat Thrall and, and Mars Colling, fucking amazing rock band. It's one of those things that you just looked at and went, holy shit, Pat Thrall and Tommy Aldridge. And they were just the time signature stuff. It changed where I wanted to go with my career. I still thought that I was kind of the guru of all this stuff. You know what I mean? I kind of had this false sense of importance in my right. world. Right. That, and thought that I lived a charmed life. So you start thinking that you know what you're doing, or you, and you couldn't be further from the fucking truth. But, you know, the mind's a fucked up thing. People believe their own shit all the time. So that was kind of my period of time where I really thought I knew what I was doing during this stuff later to find out that I really 
it wasn't me, it was them. Right. That's how it, it was a switch. Right. It all comes down to aligning yourself with the right clients and the right artists that people, like we talked about before, are going to want to live vicariously through, spend their money on a t-shirt, spend their money on a ticket, which leads us to, in 1982, you start managing Motley Crue after seeing a complete spectacle of a live Motley Crue show. We've all read the books. We've all seen the TV series. What's accurate? What's not? And what do you remember about that first night seeing Motley Crue? Well, first of all, I mean, yeah, the books and movies and all that stuff. I mean, this isn't the Kennedy assassination, so it doesn't have to be correct in the way it's set up and everything else. But yeah, that's what they did. I mean, that's the, the Motley Crue side of it was they were more like a gang than a band. Okay, they were funny. They were crazy, serious in what they did. They knew where they lived. It's almost a dream client. Okay, believe it or not. I mean, people would go, how the fuck did you do that? And it was really simple because I got on a really hard horse to ride. I had to cinch up to get on this horse and ride this because it was so what you wanted to do or what I, I thought artists should be doing because that's what they did in life. So when I saw them the first night, I thought they were horrible. I couldn't understand anything that they were playing. The sound was terrible. And I saw 3,000 kids going ape shit and buying everything that they could buy and ripping posters down. And So it didn't, it didn't matter what you thought. Right. That's when my life changed. I'm just telling you, I say this all the time. And so that's when my whole world changed. My focus was that 1982 New Year's Eve. So you take them on as a client and you mention, you know, like getting on the horse. It feels like it was kind of like riding a bucking bronco at times, right? Because yeah. those guys were crazy. I always say when people go, I'm a manager, I'm a this, I go, okay, everyone's a bull rider until someone opens the gate. <laughs> so if you think you not, can ride not as easy as it looks. No, nah, if you think you can ride the bull, get on the bull. Well, that was the bull. That was Danger Boy. I was going on a shoot number two, Danger Boy. A couple of years later, you signed Bon Jovi. How did that happen? Did one lead to the other? Was it a recommendation from somebody? You know, I think that that John probably and Richie and them probably liked the fact that here they have somebody that's in this world of Motley Crue at the time, which blew up right away. And between uh, 82 and 84, these guys just skyrocketed around the world. So yes, I think it was a little bit of that. I think it was a little bit of just the fact that I had to plan. I don't audition, never have, but when I see somebody, I think, what can I do for him? What asset can I be? And if I can't be an asset, I'm not going to take it. Because I know it's just a matter of time before we split ways. Right. So when I'm meeting with a client, I kind of have to know where I think I can take them. Or somewhat of a rabbit to pull out of my hat. Out of the box kind of thing. And I think that with Bon Jovi, 
was such a great band with Richie and Dave and Al and Tico and John. There was just a really fun rock band. As soon as I met him and saw him, I said, here, this is Van Halen. This could take the place of Van Halen because Van Halen will implode. Right. That was my plan with Bon Jovi. And that's what we did. You've been quoted talking about John Bon Jovi as someone who didn't necessarily have the best vocal talent, but that he was the hardest working guy that you had ever met. And you talk a lot about work ethic and that nobody could outwork this guy. I was just at his house two weeks ago or a week ago in uh, West Palm Beach. And it was so great to see him and Dorothy and Dave. Dave was there. Listen, Johnny quit school because of his reset. He is, he is the hardest working guy that I know. When I went to his house, he had a little studio set up in one of his rooms to work on his vocals. And when I talked to him for years, I talked to him over the years forever, you know, he wouldn't have a vocal coach come to his house. He would get in a car and drive there because he wanted to make a commitment to work. And those types of things, I hope I helped instill in him. You know what I mean? I hope it's some of my life lessons or whatever, or my way that I worked, inspired him to be better than than what he was. And you can be. If you own it, you can be. Well, so much comes down to work ethic and really putting everything that you have into the music and the recording and what you're going to share with the audience. There was also a time, and I don't think we talk about this enough, there was a time in the music business where the industry was a lot more patient. And a lot of you know, the most legendary artists of all time didn't break on their first album, didn't break on their second album. You know, you go back to U2, you go back to Springsteen, to whoever it was. But Bon Jovi, you mentioned on something I, I was listening to where when they made Slippery When Wet, it was their third album. It wasn't their right. first or second album. Right. And you know, they learned from the mistakes they made on the first two albums where they didn't overthink it. They made a fun record and they made it in six weeks. And making right. an album like that in six weeks is kind of mind-blowing when you think about here we are close to 35 years later, 40 years later, and that album is still everywhere. You know, it's you know almost like a perfect pop rock record. You know, I think I got a little bit of that from James. And James was one take guy. He was a one take guy. And when I would talk to him, if I could understand what he was saying, when I, was talking <laughs> to him, I believe he was telling me that he did please, please, please. And Papa's got a brand new bag and all those. And Mac Emmerman's garage one takes. Right. And sometimes music isn't perfect. Okay. Music doesn't have to be perfect. Doesn't have to be mapping and sequencing and all that shit. And some of it does, but I mean, where I'm coming from, from a particular artist, mine is low IQ, high RPM. Mine is to fucking get in there and let them believe you because you're pouring your fucking heart out. Right. You are opening the kimono to your life, to the public. Right. And they can see it. 
Right. And talk about work ethic. I mean, James Brown was famously known as the hardest working man in show business, you know, and and it shows. I mean, it didn't matter that he recorded in one take because he was out there every night replicating it and putting his heart and soul into every performance. And that's why people wanted to show up, you know, 100 percent. Moving on. When did you start working with the Scorpions? I think it was about 85 or I did Bon Jovi in 84 after we came back with Kiss. We ended up doing a tour with the Scorpions. Right. In 84, I think it was, with Bon Jovi. And that's when I, and I really liked them. Your work ethic is that's what they did. They had it. They were a matter of fact, the sound guy to everything else. Maybe it's a German thing. I don't know. But it was so fucking regimented and so on time and spot on. And it was just all that. So I started working, I think it was Monsters of Rock right. when I first started and uh, with Van Halen. Right. So that's when I started working with him. A few years later, after you take Scorpions on for management, you create something called the Moscow Music Peace Festival in the summer of 89, and rock bands had never been able to perform in the Soviet Union. And I read a great quote from you, again, you know, eminently quotable, where you said, that's what my life is. I make shit up and then I have to do it. So when you came up with this idea to put on a music festival in the Soviet Union where no one had ever done that, you know, the rock bands had never even been on TV there. You didn't have permits that, you know, you just did it. And I read that you said that nobody said yes, but nobody said no. And you just kept doing it. That's pretty much it. It's very hard to describe that. I ran into somebody probably as crazy as me named Stas Naman in Russia, okay? But I met him in New Jersey. And his grandfather was Nikolai McCoyman, who was the premier of Russia for 40 years. He was the largest selling artist in the Soviet Union for 25 years at the time in a band called The Flowers. He changed his name from uh, McCoyman to Naman because that was his mother's maiden name because he didn't like the fact that of uh, the communist parties and everything else, even though he was born in the Kremlin and everything else. He had a little theater called the Green Theater in Gorky Park. So I'm from the south side of Chicago thinking, well, that's cool. Gorky Park, because I saw the movie and I thought, well, that was cool. And Russia was always a distant thing that you could never penetrate, you know what I mean? And when I was in the army, I was a driver going through Checkpoint Charlie every day to drive through the east to make sure there wasn't troop buildups. I was a driver at 19 years old going through Checkpoint Charlie and seeing the Russians and the East Germans and all that kind of stuff. So I had this whole thing about, well, this would be cool if we could pull it off. And Stas said, well, we could do this at our 1,500-seat Green Theater. And I flew over there to Russia and it was in 88 and it was dismal and crazy and nothing's there. And they didn't have a neon sign in the whole country. And it was no restaurants and no nothing. It was just really, really, really terrible. And I said, fuck, if I'm going to do this, I want to do it in the stadium. 
And he goes, they'll never let you do it. I said, I know. Everybody tells me no to everything I want to do, but let's just go do it. Let's try it. If we can't do it, then fuck it. I won't do anything. That's where I want to do it. We did it in Lusticky Stadium. They lit the Olympic torch for us. They did everything for us because nobody said no. And Gorbachev told me later in 1991 that the reason why I got it done is because he didn't say no. Right. Because we had no permits. I thought we'd be arrested when we landed in Moscow because I didn't have a permit to land. I had nothing. I had Peter Max paying a fucking airplane. We called the magic bus to Moscow and I put 50 some artists and shit on a plane to Moscow and there we go. It's it's a good life lesson because sometimes we wait for permission and nothing gets done. And the opposite of that is just doing it and waiting for somebody to tell you you can't do that. And a lot of times they just don't tell you you can't do it and you do it. You know, some of the artists that you put on that plane who played the festival in Moscow, uh, Cinderella, Scorpion, Skid Row, Motley Crue, Ozzy Osbourne, Bon Jovi. I mean, that's a movie in itself all those guys on one airplane going into a place where I heard you say that there was no ice in the country and you had to ship in ice. Yeah. We had to bring everything in that you couldn't get anything there. We had to bring cleaning crews in to clean the hotel because we couldn't, I couldn't put people in the hotel. It sounds like there was a lot of prep on your end that had to go into this to make sure that it it went off without a hitch. You know, the other thing too is I'm not sure that, all the people that can, the 641 people I brought to Moscow understood anything other than they were going to go do the first show, the biggest show in the world and, and be on Russian TV. Right. None of them understood. Maybe I didn't understand that much either at the time, uh, how we got there and what this, the importance of this, there's a four part series being done now on the Moscow music peace festival that will come out probably early next year or maybe at the end of this year. So that will explain a lot of the cultural differences and how it happened because it was right to happen. Five years earlier, I couldn't have done that at all. Right. It just happened to be that timing that I wanted to do it. Such a monumental yeah. undertaking. And to be able to pull it off, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that this documentary is going to be really interesting, you know, to finally hear the story and see, see the story. It the shit out of me, too, that we, we got it done. But I always say life is like a dog sled. Unless you're the lead dog, the view is always the same. <laughs> so uh, I don't like looking up somebody's ass, so you have to, you have to kind of be that, that kind of thing. Was there a charitable component to the festival? I know that there yes. you started a charity called the Make a Difference Foundation. Yes, I started that in my 85, 86. And yes, that charitable entity, Make a Difference Foundation, we were heavily into rehabbing a lot of artists, Molly Crew included, some of the Bon Jovi guys. Aerosmith, to everybody else that was in here, Ozzy, everybody that was going through this, we're trying to clean up what the first 10 years of 79 through 89 was in the decadence world and try to get these people to not die of 
excess. And that was including some of my family members and a lot of my friends' families. And so one of the things I saw when I went over there about a year before we put this together was Sasa had introduced me to this doctor who was treating kids or Soviet kids for drug and alcohol abuse. Now, they didn't really have cocaine and weed and all that stuff. What they did was they did inhalants. So they did glue, turpentine, gasoline, you know, uh, all kind of made shit. You know, it was just because they didn't have any access to anything. But they would put these kids in these monster hospitals, two, three thousand of them. And they treated them like we used to treat alcoholics in the 20s and 30s with electroshock therapy and shit like that. So when we saw that, and still now you have to remember, I'm looking for somebody to say, yes, you can come here and do this show. So I met with the doctors in the Soviet Union and with the doctors, Dave Lewis and everybody and Tim in uh, LA and said, why don't we raise the money to bring doctors over to Russia to teach them how to deal with drug and alcohol on kids instead of frying that way they can't say no to me. Right. I had to have some sort of hook. Now it was a legitimate hook for me. It wasn't a made up hook because we were in, involved in this in the U S and working with the doctors and everything else. And Motley was completely sober at the time. And most of the other bands were trying to be a little bit you know, more uh, sensitive to it. So it was a way to help get validation for the Russians to say, it's not all bad. Because remember, they were putting kids in jail for listening to the music that right. I was playing right. when, I, when I brought them there. I mean, I was at a meeting and Stas and a Russian were screaming at each other in this. I had no idea. I had an interpreter that I'd look at the interpreter and she'd go, uh, he said no. <laughs> and they'd yell at each other for like 10 minutes. So I had no idea what was going on. And at the end of the screaming match, they get up and hug and we walk out. I say to Stas, so what it was? He said, that was the head of Russian television and we're going to air it live. Wow. On TV for the first time in the history of the world. Wow. So that concert really changed a lot of people's lives, both here and there. And one of the people who was really inspired, or you know, a group of people who were really inspired by that experience were your band that you managed, the Scorpions, who ended up being so inspired that they wrote a song called Winds of Change, which I read has sold now 14 million copies worldwide, one of the best-selling single rock songs of all time. There's even an entire podcast dedicated to that song and the theory that it was actually a song written by the CIA as a plan to weaken communism in Russia, and there's actually an episode that features you. Yes, and I called Klaus right after I heard that, and I said, I said, Klaus, why didn't you tell me you didn't write one to change? And he goes, what? I said, didn't you hear? He goes, no, I wrote, wouldn't have changed. I said, no, you didn't. A CIA agent wrote. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, and he was defending himself. No, no, I wrote that song. But I, you know, 
But I was there listening to him whistle the song. And, well, you know, it's, to, a, it's, it's and, a great and song. And any song that can inspire an entire, you know, 10, 12 episode podcast, you know, more power to you. Let's talk about KISS. You start managing KISS in the mid-90s. You've now been managing them for over 25 years. There's a story that you told me that I must repeat at least a few times a month ever since you told me the story years and years ago. But rather than me mangle it, I would love for you to tell the story about KISS asking you if they put the makeup back on and went back on tour after so many years of being unmasked could you, as their manager, get them on the cover of Time magazine? Well, basically what happened was Gene and Paul and I knew each other for years and did dates together. And Gene would call up every now and then and say, we'd like to talk to you about working together. And I'd say, are you putting makeup on? And it was a no. And there wasn't anything I could do. Again, you have to have some sort of idea you have to have that rabbit you have to have a hat in order to do it and without the makeup there wasn't a rabbit to pull out of your hat but at any rate so they did unplugged which was i believe the largest selling unplugged other than the first one which was mine with bon jovi and richie but at any rate so we're sitting in gene's house ken sunshine who's a big publicist he was there, and I walked in, and Gene said, I said, hey, what, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm here, Gene wants it. And Gene said, well, we have all the press in the world, but he can get us on the cover of Time Magazine and Newsweek. And I said, oh, really? You can do that? <laughs> well, I know everybody. I said, no, you can't. I said, you can't get them on the cover of this. Just because four old guys get together and put makeup on, that's on the cover of Time Magazine. I said, but I can get you on the cover. That's what you want. I guess you're on the cover of Time Magazine, Newsweek. I guess you're on every magazine pretty much around the world. And they go, how? I said, put makeup on and shoot the president. Okay. You'll be on every <laughs> magazine in the entire world. That is just the best story. I, I love oh, that. But that's the only way you're going to get that. You know what I mean? So it was, uh, you know, and we still laugh about it. Even Paul says sometimes when somebody comes up with some. Crazy idea, Paul will say. So is it time to shoot the president? <laughs> so when you're managing an act like Kiss, you know, for now over 25 years, it's almost as much managing a brand as it is managing a band. How does that relationship keep going decades and decades in? You know, is it kind of like throwing the proverbial football around where you all have an idea, Gene will have an idea, Paul will have an idea, and you guys just keep it going, keep it moving? You know, I think that that's pretty accurate in the sense of, you know, one thing about Gene and Paul, they know what I did. Nobody likes excess more than those two. I mean, you look at what they did. These guys were two Jewish kids from, you know, Queens and not 
the most attractive guys in show business in a band and knew that they couldn't compete. So they figured out a way that they could put this gear on and be something that they weren't. And they could be fucking great at it. So from the time that Paul Stanley stuck his star on his eye, he was fucking star child, buddy. <laughs> okay, And you knew he was. And he did everything that you wouldn't do if you were in blue jeans and T-shirts playing in a band. None of which didn't stop with the antics of blowing shit up and being over the top. It was musically. If you listen to Kiss, there was nothing near that. They even sounded anywhere near that. Ace, as sloppy as guitar player as he was, he had a style. The music was different. The imagery was different. Of all the bands that I've ever managed, I've never seen that effect on people around the world as much. You know, I mean, I just haven't. It's not something they planned to do. You know, it was something they had to do. You know what I mean? Right, and they're and, still doing it almost a half century later. It's crazy. And, and they're still doing it. And it was a very good team between myself and Gene and Paul. And it still now, is. Yes, it's a phenomenal team. It's a big machine. Let's quickly touch on a couple of the other artists of note that you've worked with. Skid Row, you started working with in the 80s. Speaking of Atlantic, that was a big success, you know, for Atlantic Records and, and for you. Any Skid Row stories? Oh, I mean, there's a million Skid Pick Row one. stories. Pick one. Uh, yeah. Okay. Davey Sabo, Snake Sabo, okay, was John Bon Jovi's best friend. Okay. When I signed John, he was actually the guitar player with Johnny before Richie. And when Al, the bass player, brought them into the band, Dave was out. And then he would say to me, I'm Davey Sabo, I'm Snake Sabo, and I'm blah, 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 blah. And, you know, Johnny and I broke picks in the yard and all this kind of stuff. And you're going to manage me one day. I go, yeah, go get me a beer. <laughs> and, then, and so that was my relationship with Snake. But then Snake had this band, Skid Row, and he didn't have a particularly good setup. Him and Rachel and Scotty and Rob, they had a singer front guy that just wasn't, the, wasn't that charismatic guy. And then we found Sebastian Bach. And Sebastian was Sebastian. You know, 19 years old, six foot four. Uh, you know, Ahmed thought he was a girl at first. <laughs> that was just pretty hysterical. But anyways, you know, he's just one of those great-looking front guys who could sing. And then the songs came to life with that front guy, you know, that could do 18 to life. Right, same, same songs, but a star same front songs, Same songs, different application, different presentation. Yeah, 18 to life. 
we also had the Bon Jovi dates because of Johnny and Richie and Snake and the Underground, and we signed everything through Atlantic Drama. Those guys were absolutely huge. You know, when they were big, they were huge. So you had, at the same time, you had Motley, you had Bon Jovi, you had Scorpions, you had Skid Row. It's crazy. Yeah, that was a little crazy. <laughs> so real quickly, you did a year with Guns N' Roses. You've worked with Ted Nugent. You moved to Nashville 20 years ago and worked with Darius Rucker and Hootie and turned Darius into odds, definitely the odds stacked against him, a massive, massive country star. What do you take from, from Nashville as kind of like the home of the new rock and roll? And where do you see things going, you know, from here? Well, I mean, Nashville music today is pop music with guitars because pop music doesn't have guitars. So they don't have the Nashville sound anymore. That used to be 20 people in Nashville that made up the Nashville sound. So the 127 radio stations that reported for Billboard and everything else would know who the bass player was on almost every song. Now, it was by design because producers would produce, there were four or five big producers in Nashville that produced all the stuff, and they had their their go-to. Right, they called them the A-team. Yeah, exactly. When I got there, when I first got there in 95, with a label that I opened up called Magnetone Records, with Roy Spear and Nick Kula and all that stuff, my first artist was Shelby Lynn. But she was the antichrist of country. Right. And I didn't want her to be country. I was trying to make her pop, which I ended up taking her pop. And she won a Grammy. She won a Grammy and all that stuff. But at any rate, so that was the Nashville sound back then. Now that's gone. When I first got there, you couldn't repeat a chorus. Right. They didn't repeat choruses there. It wasn't hook orientated. It was a story. Well, one thing that's really interesting the biggest artist in Nashville right now is Morgan Wallen. Morgan Wallen's producer used to engineer all the Nickelback records, you know, up in Canada. So sure. it's almost like what that sound was a decade ago has now permeated Nashville, you know? Yes, it has. It's gone to that. And you have to remember, country music in Nashville is like NASCAR. They give people access. You hear Blake and you hear... Everybody, uh, Kelsey Ballerini and Taylor and everybody else, they give you access to them. It's like every uh, June they would do fanfare. Yep. 300,000 people would fly in. Could you imagine trying to get Aerosmith, ACDC, Kiss, Bon Jovi, everybody to show up and sit and sign autographs for 12 hours? Yeah, I, I remember when, when Atlantic had Zach Brown band, and yeah. it was the first time that I ever heard the expression, you know, we all know what a meet and greet is, but it was the first time I ever heard of the expression meet and eat, and he would barbecue yeah. for his fans. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, they gave access to people. They were like right. the drivers of NASCAR. And rock and pop was Formula One. You don't get access. Right. That's a, the dividing lines. So, you know, Nashville was so interesting at the time that I was there that I got to break Darius record at country because I don't know any better. I don't have a switch that says I can't do shit. (laughs) (laughs) 
I, I don't I don't have one. And we love you for that, Doc. That's just me. So when I said to this president of, of, of the record label, you should sign this kid. Well, who is it? I'm not telling you. Well, what you and we went through this whole process. And then finally he said, Okay, who is it? And I said, Darius Rucker. He didn't know who it was. And then he said thing, he goes, Hootie? <laughs> you know, Darius Rucker is in Hootie. He goes, Doc, he's black. I go, he is? <laughs> but Darius comes from that world. I well, mean, he knows he, he knows every country record ever made. Ever, this guy. ever. Listen, it's not me. It's getting him in the position to tell his story to people with the right mindset right. then to listen to it. And that's what I did. That was the rabbit that I had to pull right. out of my hat. And it worked. How, how, of course, because when Darius Rucker walks in by himself, carrying his guitar, and opens the door for, and he sold, you know, probably at that time, 30, 40, 50 million records, between all the records he had, probably at least 40 million. He walked in, held the, the door open for everybody to come in, said, hi, I'm Darius Rucker. And he's got a great personality. He's got a great heart. You know what I mean? And he's country. And he knows more about country than you do, than they do. Yeah. And he studied it, and he is country. So all I had to do was put him in the situation right. to win, and he won. Amazing. I mean, again, if there's one thing we're going to take away from our time together today, it's being the best at what you do and making passion front and center, that passion and hard work and a work ethic, you know, are the best traits that you can have. And I think that's why, you know, I'm still, you know, I'm here talking to you today, you know, close to 45 years of, of you managing some of the biggest artists of all time. And on behalf of Atlantic Records, you know, thank you for all the success that we've been able to have together. And it's always a pleasure seeing you. And I really appreciate it. Thanks, Doc. Well, thank you. And we'll see you after <laughs> Take care. Thanks, everybody. Thanks to Doc McGee for joining us this week, a man who's as colorful as the legendary bands he's managed, someone who's seen it all and has somehow lived to tell us all about it. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear or have suggestions for a future show, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at rockschoolpodcast at gmail.com. And meet us back here next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. 
Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbarg, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastino, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, Zach Kornhauser, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.